KRCL, Salt Lake City. Today's election day with polls open till 8 p.m. If you still have your mail-in ballot, take it to a vote center in your county by 8. Utah offers same-day voter registration with valid ID. Anyone in line as of 8 p.m. will be allowed to vote. To track your ballot and other voter information, visit vote.utah.gov. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from our sustaining members and Mark Miller Subaru. I'm Rashawn Leak, and this is Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creators. Thanks for plugging into the community with me tonight on election night. Tonight on Roundtable Tuesday edition of the show, we have a panel discussion on art, film, and culture through our indigenous lens. Joining us will be Valine MC and Dave John of KRCL's Living the Circle of Life. And in fact, I got Dave here right now who's going to be doing a land acknowledgement. What's going on, Dave? Hey, um, thanks for having me on again. Another takeover. <laughs> of course, brother. Of course. I'm glad to have you. I'm glad. Anytime I get to share some space with you, it's always a good day. True, true. Yes. <laughs> And the same back. Appreciate that. <laughs> All right, yeah, we got a land acknowledgement to put out here, and as I usually start off on my show, uh, good evening, relatives. Um, yeah, we acknowledge that KRCL is located and broadcast on the indigenous indigenous shared territories of the Goshut, Paiute, Shoshone and Ute and Dene nations, or peoples. We honor the original ancestors of this land and also offer respect to our tribal communities. We acknowledge this history to cultivate respect for the advocate with our indigenous communities still connected to this land. Thank you. I, I love, you know what, we don't, we don't do that enough. We don't really pay homage to like, you know, and, and, and really recognize whose land we are actually on. And I, I, and I love that we can, we can pass the mic and do that. So let's, uh, let's talk about some rallies and resources, y'all. Okay. So joining me, we have our own Laura Jones. Hey, hey. What's going on, Laura? How you doing? I'm just wanting to remind folks. I'm on the uh, apple cart. I'm on the soapbox. Go vote. You still have another just under two hours till the polls Plenty close. Plenty of time from what I hear as long so, as you get in line. That's right. Get in line. So rallies and resources. We're mixing it up with some special guests and some recordings. Um, on Sunday, Valine MC hosted Living the Circle of Life and recorded a conversation with C.J. Robb of Adopt a Native Elder. They've got their annual Navajo rug sale coming up online, so we're going to hear about that. Plus, earlier today, I Zoomed with Fanny Guadalupe Blauer of Artes de Mexico in Utah. The 11th annual film Mexico starts this week with the Salt Lake Film Society. She's going to talk about that, share some of it. But first, in the studio, we have Bill Tibbetts from Crossroads Urban Center and the Coalition of Religious Communities. Tomorrow, Rashawn, they uh, have a Zoom call going out into the ether to... Um, call on the governor, Governor Spencer Cox, and the Utah legislature to do the right thing about emergency housing for our unsheltered relatives, as Dave just said. Hey, Bill. What's going on, Bill? How you doing, brother? Well, I've been working at Crossroads Urban Center. Uh, first off, thanks for having me. But I've, I've been working at Crossroads Urban Center for 21 years. And 
there have been gaps in our homeless services system in different ways over those years, but this is the first time that we're actually seeing families with kids being turned away at the shelter. Yeah, and, and I saw wow. some stories about that earlier. So what's the status? What's going on? How many folks have you been hearing uh, about? Well, we, we know that just in the month of September, there were 78 families that called the Midvale Family Shelter and were told, hey, we, I'm sorry, we don't have a place for you. Um, and, and, and this is a new problem. I mean, there was a bill during the legislative session about how can we make do a better job planning for, for the unsheltered, you know, for making sure that there's an overflow shelter for people who are sleeping outside when it gets cold. And nobody, I, I, including myself, was saying, hey, we need to make sure we have a plan for kids mm -hmm. because we just hadn't had a problem with that since, I think, 98 or something. I mean, wow. It's, it's, and so um, we have been doing, you know, we're just, we're, we are, are calling... Um, on, on the governor to call a special session. Actually, the, the thing with the Coalition of Religious Communities is hosting tomorrow on Zoom is an explanation about why that's needed. We think what the reason we want a special session is is we think we need we want two things. One is is for money to uh, buy a, a, a motel to create a second family shelter um, that won't be ready in by you know soon enough. And so we also want there's a when they kicked all the families out of the old downtown shelter, mm -hmm. we lost basically 200 beds that could have been used for families with kids. Um, they originally had a motel voucher program with 40 vouchers when they first moved the families out. We worked really hard to reduce, to get families in housing faster. And within a year, there was, you know, we only needed 10 vouchers. And so that's where the program is funded at, is at 10 vouchers. But that's not... When you've got 70 families showing up, obviously that's not enough now. So we're, we're saying we want more motel vouchers for this year, and we want to, ha uh, re to convert a hotel into a second family shelter, motel into a fam second family shelter. Um, we're talking about why. Actually, we've since we started planning this event, um, another group based out of Crossroads uh, called Powerful Moms Who Care is now organizing a press conference at the Hall of Governors at the state capitol. Love it. Um, with uh, Unsheltered Utah and, uh, and Cork. Uh, we're, we're together going to call a, for the governor to, to, to call a special session because the legislature meets next week. If we're going to build a second family shelter before it, this time next year, we can't wait till yeah. the state fiscal yeah. year begins on July 1st. So that's, that's, what we're, that's why we're saying this is a crisis. We need to act like it. So tomorrow at, is it 1 p.m.? At 1 p.m. And it's, if you go to the front page of our website, www.crossroadsurbancenter.org, it, there is an, a graphic, and if you click on it, it'll take you, you to the mm -hmm. registration page. We've already got a draft of tonight's show notes up at krcl.org as well, and a link. It's a Zoom. All you need to do is sign up so you can reserve a seat. But this press conference that is also being organized, any idea when that's going to happen? That's going to be on t at 10 o'clock in the Hall of Governors. Tomorrow. On Thursday. On Thursday, 10 a.m. So Thursday. We're explaining why we're doing the press conference mm -hmm. tomorrow. We're doing the press conference on Thursday. Got it. We need to shine a light on this. So 78 families that we weren't anticipating, where have that, they come from? And that's what I was going to – not right? just come from. I, I Like for our listeners who don't know, okay, you show up at the center and there's no beds. That's it. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. That, that, you're either in your car or whatever you came in, that's where you're sleeping in for the night. And what's it doing out there it's, right now? It's, it, well, it's when cold. I came in, it was raining, but it yeah. looked like – once the temperatures drop, that's going to turn into slush, going to turn into potential snow. It, it has, there have, there have been families with kids like sleeping in the snow. Some of them are sleeping in their cars, some have tents, 
I, I think, I mean, I just can't imagine being a parent. You show up at the Wigan Center, you know, looking, mm-hmm. at, you know, because you're saying that's where you go to get connected and you, you spend the whole day waiting for a bed. And then the, the, when they close, you're like, oh, sorry, um, come back tomorrow. So is this more families falling into poverty, falling into homelessness? Is this a combination with what we read about in the last week about Wyoming admitting it's putting folks on buses to come down here for services? No, this is this is about, I mean, the cost of a two-bedroom apartment in Salt Lake County has gone up. I mean... Exponentially. It's just since the pandemic began, it has gone up so much that... Uh, and all of the pandemic assistance is, is going away. You have, I mean, people, and, and so if you were, if families that were close to the edge before, you get a notice saying, oh, you're starting next month, your rent is $300 higher. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you say, okay, well, we got to move, except for there's nowhere go? cheaper. Where do you go? Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's, and so, um, yeah, this is, this is, and that's why we're saying this is an emergency. This isn't just a blip. This isn't just a, mm-hmm. um, I mean, this is, this is about kids in Utah sleeping in the cold. I was talking to people in a work, who work every day in our food pantry about what it's like to, to give kids a blanket for the night when they're sleeping in their car. Um, I mean, that's not like, that's not something that they were prepared for because mm-hmm. this, is, this is something we just haven't seen before. Right. Well, and we want you to come back next Tuesday with Powerful Moms, Unsheltered Utah, and Cork and talk about this more in depth on Tuesday's show next week. Can we do that? Absolutely. Okay, so again, there is a Zoom conference at 1 p.m. tomorrow. Check tonight's show notes for a link. And then 10 a.m. Thursday in the Hall of Governors. The Hall of Governors, yes. And there are 36 governorships up for election across the country tonight, folks. Not here in Utah, but um, just think about that. When it comes to why does your vote matter? Think about what Bill just said about Crossroads, Urban Center's alarm, and Cork's alarm they're raising about how many again? 78 families? Just in September. Just in September. All right. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all back here with a bunch of folks on Tuesday to keep shining a light on this, okay? Thank you. All right. Now, in the meantime, Film Mexico starts mm-hmm. on Thursday, and I had a chance to speak with Fanny uh, Guadalupe Blauer. Let's roll that tape, shall we? Let's go. Film Mexico kicks off this Thursday night at the Broadway with Salt Lake Film Society. And joining me to talk about it is Fanny Guadalupe Blauer of Artes de Mexico in Utah. Hi, Fanny. How are you? Good. Super excited to start Film Mexico. What is it about this festival every year in our community that you love? Oh my gosh, it's an opportunity to express a new way of what Mexico is. Uh, through film. Uh, we always make sure that the films uh, compile the diversity of what Mexico represents. And so that's what I love. So many, you know, 68 languages, uh, so many etnias that represent each state. Well, and the lineup this year features prominent works by indigenous filmmakers, as well as seasoned, new, and local talent. Yes, so we are really uh, paying attention to the voices of indigenous communities in Mexico, especially because we realize that many of the people who make the immigrant community here in the United States come from these rural communities. Uh, When we think of uh, Mexico, we tend to generalize as as one 
people of one place, but really Mexico, again, is, is rich in ethnias and languages and the diversity of color. And so we also bring that into the, into the conversation, the different languages. And this year we have great films that depict the Maya culture in the state of Chiapas, the central Mexico, um, the Nahuatl community. So it's very rich. And I see that Thursday night you're kicking it off with a screening of The Sower, El Sembrador, and then a live Q&A with director Melissa Elizondo Moreno. Yes, I will be happy to be part of the, the conversation uh, to interview Melissa in and to learn more about what the process was of making this film. You will be very surprised. This is a very inspiring film of uh, the, the story of a teacher in a rural community in a Maya region of, of Chiapas and how he incorporates the elements of art and community and solidarity as part of the educational system, more than the competitive system that we are so used to that. And then throughout the festival, you've got free pre-recorded panels in English and Spanish with subtitles. Yes, so my collaboration with the Sadlik Film Society, uh, it's of course hosting, helping host the event, but since the pandemic, we really changed the platform, which has been very beneficial. I was an innovative in many ways, because instead of having one panel with the main director of the feature film, we are creating a panel discussion for each one of the films, and this includes the community. So my contribution comes as of look at members of the community that represent the theme of the film. And then they are in the conversation along with the production, with the production or with the director of the movie. So we bring that together in a way that our community feels integrated in this conversation. They give their perspective as from someone uh, that could be Hispanic, but also living in Utah. And then on Friday, November 11th, you'll also be interviewing uh, the filmmaker Melissa Elizondo Moreno after a screening of Mending the Heart, Remover el Corazón. What's that, what's that one about? I feel very attached to this film because this is an, a film that uh, talks about how children connect with their own personal trauma uh, through art as survivors of an earthquake. You know, back in 2017, there was a big earthquake that destroyed uh, some sections of, of the state of Oaxaca and some buildings collapsed in Mexico City. Many children lost their parents or family members. And it is through a project of art that invites the communities in the state of Oaxaca to, to express the children, uh, allow the children to express how do they feel about it. it is in, and, and it's magical to see the result of what art makes as for children to release all this trauma through art. There's so many other films as well that will be available virtually starting Friday, November 11th. You can get the whole schedule in tonight's show notes, folks, or also at slfs.org slash Film Mexico. But Fanny, as the director of Artes de Mexico in Utah, what's your final message to folks listening to this and thinking, I want to go check this out. Is it for me, even if I'm not Mexican, even if I don't speak Spanish? Exactly. I feel like everybody should be coming to this just because we are celebrating the art 
through filming, not only about Mexico, but the cultural connections. I always put emphasis on that. You don't have to be Mexican to feel that you have a cultural connection with your neighbor country or other countries in the world that celebrate the diversity, the language, and the issues that matter to all of us. These movies are not unique only to Mexico. They are because of the ethnical content, but they are all depicting issues of social justice, gender, equity. And those are the subjects that we need to bring up in our communities to be more, uh, more embracing who is part of our community. That's what I love. And that is Fanny Guadalupe Blauer of Artes de Mexico. Film Mexico starts Thursday night, which of course is the same night as Rumble mm-hmm. for our Music Meets Movies. But uh, folks, do check tonight's show notes for more on Film Mexico. And now we've got a clip from Sunday's Living the Circle of Life show with Valine MC and all the details on Adopt a Native Elder and their upcoming virtual sale happening on Friday. Let's roll that tape. Let's go. I still say tape. <laughs> I love it. And you're listening to KRCL's Living the Circle of Life right here with me, Valine MC. And I am so happy to announce that here in the studio, we have CJ Robb of the Adopt a Native Elder Program joining us. CJ, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. And we are so excited to have you. And if you could introduce yourself to our Living the Circle of Life listeners, as well as our radioactive listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm CJ Robb. I'm the Director of Business and Operations for the Adopt-A-Native Elder program. And I've been working with Adopt-A-Native Elder for over a decade now. And we work to serve traditional Navajo elders living on the reservation in Southern Utah and Northern Arizona, fill in gaps in elder care, helping the elders to age in place in their traditional way um, by providing them with food and medical supplies and everyday necessities that they need. Beautiful, and then so, so we were talking about this, but you said, how many years have you been with the program? It's over 10 years now. I think it's 11 years this year. Wow. And so we were kind of talking about that, too. That's kind of been, that was 10 years, kind of unprecedented times. Yes. So there, and it sounds like um, the need is growing and you're having more outreach, which sounds amazing. But then also you have to sustain that and so that you can give support to the Native elders. So uh, we want to hear a little bit more. Uh, how does Adopt a Native Elder Program, also known as A&E, serve the Native community, you know, Native elders? And also I was wondering, are they on reservations? Is it urban or is it a mixture of both? So mainly our work is on the Navajo Reservation in Southern Utah and Northern Arizona. Right now we're serving elders in 13 geographic locations on the reservation. And we're actually down on the reservation for about a month in the spring and a month in the fall, physically delivering supplies. And we've we've grown a ton in the last couple of years. And so this year we're serving about 1,069 traditional elders all over the age of 75. And um, we just finished our fall food runs. We distributed over 820,000 pounds of food wow. and medical supplies this year, which is absolutely amazing. It's That's really phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely phenomenal. And one of the unique things about Adapt Native Elders, we're really volunteer powered. We rely on volunteers coming into our warehouse Tuesdays and Fridays all throughout the year to pack food boxes and medical boxes and all the supplies that we distribute. Um, and then we're volunteered powered on the food runs too. It took about 340 volunteers that actually joined us this year wow. to help yeah, haul boxes down to the reservation and distribute everything. So we have a lot of volunteer opportunities throughout the year um, that 
are available on our website. And everybody that comes and helps out really makes what we do possible. And what is your website? How can people find it is, you? It is www.anelder.org, anelder.org. Okay. And we'll remind you again at the end of this, but that's it's good to know because I was just wondering, how do you recruit all the volunteers? Like what kind of efforts? You know, it's it's little things, things like this, things like speaking. You know, we've done some in-person events at Red Butte and uh, our rug show, which is coming up and it's going to be virtual this year. But all those things bring in a couple of people. Um, and then word of mouth. We have a lot of volunteers who have such a wonderful experience. They keep coming back and they bring family members and friends and, and that's how we grow. I love that. And so you mentioned the rug show that's coming up. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Why the rug show? And tell us about when is it happening and how yes. can people get to it? So this is going to be our 34th annual Adopt Native Elder Navajo Rug Show and Sale. It's coming up uh, this coming Friday, November 11th at 6 p.m. And it's all virtual this year. So it launches on our website, um, anelder.org. And the rug show really came about. Um, so our founder, Linda Myers, who's been with the program almost 40 years, um, started delivering food and supplies to elders in the big mountain area of the reservation. And one of the elders came to her with a rug and said, can you sell this for me? And you know, a lot of these elders that we're supporting in their 80s and 90s, they sustain their families through their traditional weaving and their traditional artwork and, um, and selling their rugs is a way for them to sustain themselves in their old age and earn some income for themselves. And so, Linda took this rug home. She was able to sell it to her friends. And next time she went down to the reservation, um, not only did the elder have a rug, but she had all of her sisters and they all had rugs. And that that. was kind of the birth of the rug show that we could create this uh, nonprofit marketplace where people could buy rugs. The elders set their own prices and they receive 100 percent of the proceeds from their sales as a way to help sustain themselves through the coming winter. And so for 34 years in November, we've held this rug show for 30 years, it was actually in Park City at the Deer Valley Resort. And now with COVID, it's held live on our website. And this year we'll have more than 600 Navajo rugs of all designs available for people. Um, One of the things that makes our show unique is that there's a theme to each year's show. This year is weaving sacred canyons. And so some of these rugs, there's about 40 rugs that are weaving sacred canyons rugs. And the weavers have worked all year to create these rugs that don't exist anywhere else. So this year there are these um, beautiful canyons. There's kind of this poem that was written that goes along with it about um, in the silence of the canyons we weave. And so it's these sacred canyons, kind of the desert landscape in these gorgeous earth tones, colors. Um, You know, anybody that spends a lot of time in southern Utah and northern Arizona knows that kind of color palette. And and so there's these really unique rugs that are not available anywhere else that'll be available at the show. And then with that, there's all of the elders rugs. You know, they might not be perfect anymore, but they are gorgeous works of art. Mm -hmm. There's hand spun rugs that are all these elders. You know, it's only the old elders that still do hand spun rugs where they shear their sheep, they spin it into wool, they hand dye with vegetation and sand from the earth, and then they weave these gorgeous rugs. You know, that's that's one of those skills that's not being passed down as much anymore. But when you're dealing with elders in their 80s and 90s, we still have those hand spun rugs. Wow. What a treasure. Yeah. And I love hearing that. Like, it's like one of the happy things that came out of the whole pandemic is that 
some people realized, wow, we don't have to keep this so local and we can actually expand this so that we can reach people more on a on a global level. Right. Absolutely. That's one of the neat things with moving the show online is, you know, you what's missing is the interaction that you used to have with the elders that would come to the show. That's irreplaceable. But what we do have is we're able to present their artwork and their culture to a much larger community all throughout the country, throughout the world. And that's been a really special opportunity. I love that. And then you described beautifully because that's what I was wondering. I was like, what do these rugs look like? But you're talking like from A to Z of everything that it takes to produce these rugs and the traditional knowledge that takes to actually design and bring them forward. That is happening with these particular rugs. That makes them so unique. Absolutely. These are, you know, the every rug in this show, you're looking at generations of teachings and skill that's been passed on. And one of my favorite, we used to have this, this little sheet at the rug show that talked about how long it takes to produce a rug. And it talked about shearing the sheep and spinning the wool and going through the whole thing. And it was, you know, 400 or so hours to do a two by three rug. And uh, one of the years I was walking by this elder's table and she goes, your sheet's wrong. <laughs> and, and I looked at her and I said, what do you mean? She says, well, at the bottom of the sheet, it says it takes one hour to sell a rug. And she said, it took us nine hours just to drive to Park City. <laughs> and so that kind of shows you, you know, what this show means to these Absolutely. families, creating that marketplace for them to continue their lifestyle, continue their traditions. So we cut down on that part now, and now you have them online. And when I went online, I saw the canyons you were talking about in the theme. Stunning, gorgeous earth tones. And with the canyons, some even like actual canyon designs weaved into the rugs. And so can people purchase them now? How do they go about doing that? That's a great question. So there are there's about 100 rugs of all styles that are live on our website right now. But there's about 500 rugs that are going live right at 6 p.m. on Friday the 11th. And uh, and that includes all of those Sacred Canyon rugs. So the theme rugs, all these rugs that we've been collecting throughout the year specifically for this show are all going to be available at 6 p.m. this Friday um, at nelder.org. Oh, that's wonderful. So, you know, we have to say with people that if you want to support adopt a native elder program not just with the rug show but just in the future following what you have going on is there social media we know you mentioned the website can you give the website to us one more and social media so we can follow and see what you guys are doing yes so we're we're on facebook we're on instagram at, at adopt a native elder and uh and you can find us on our website www.nelder.org and that is the adopt a native elder program the big annual rug sale happening virtually online and the host of that conversation valine mc in the, the studio. one and only oh, sitting right across from me and so Dave happy to be John. here so uh we got a big conversation coming up next but uh really trying to drop a lot of information uh this month for native american heritage month shine a light on some nonprofits um and some events happening but next, Dave and Valine, I'm kind of curious where you want to go with a conversation about art, film, music through an indigenous lens. You guys are heavy into the music due to living the circle of life, Dave. Uh, yeah, uh, it's nice that uh, come across um, just a bunch of different songs. I mean, you know, for the show and stuff. Uh, one of the topics that we kind of were talking about is with... Uh, Sa- Sashin uh, Little Feathers mm-hmm. and about her little sp- 
one minute speech that they gave her at the uh, what was it, the Oscars? Yeah, I think it was Oscars. I think it was 1973. Yeah. She was accepting it on behalf of Brando, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. And I guess there were threats from the people that were running it. You know, John Wayne was putting his mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah, if she Brush went over a minute, they were going to arrest her. Wow. And the speech was about, I think it was six minutes long from the letter that uh, Brando gave her to read. Mm. Yeah, that she didn't actually get to read. So maybe after we talk with... No, our, let's, okay. do yeah. let's do it now. Let's do it now. Okay, because yeah. I think then we can ask our, our cinematographer. But the reason it's uh, Sashin's in the news again, though, is she recently passed away, right? Yeah. Yes. And then folks are... Um, uh, there are some claims that she did not have any indigenous heritage, but you pointed out something interesting to me, Valine. And that's that um, she is Hispanic, mestizo, and indigenous through that heritage. Yeah, and it's it's something that, you know, they say you have to decolonize your thinking to understand mm-hmm. that, to understand that there were indigenous tribes here long before borders came along. Yep. And... Uh, I think the bigger conversation, um, because I did read a piece according to San Francisco Chronicle that was actually um, uh, written by Jacqueline Keeler, who is of the Diné Dakota tribe. And she was writing about it and kind of giving all the history and like trying to trace Sashin Littlefeather's lineage. And she couldn't come up with any um, federally or um, Native American recognized tribes. And I'm like, okay, that like, I think that's fair. I think we need to see both sides of it, but let's also, let's, I think a bigger picture, let's talk about why does she want to deny her Mexican heritage to begin with? I, I want to take it one step further too. What always bothers me is why wait now? It feels cowardice. You wait till after she passes away where she can't defend herself. It, it just feels like, you know, if, if this conversation really needed to be had about where she from and her identity, then let's do it while she was still on the planet with us. Absolutely. And it's with, with you saying that, but also she, I feel like her work and what she did still doesn't go undone. Mm-hmm. And there was still the discrimination that if you want to go listen to pull up, you can look up the, um, her denial, respectful denial of Os- uh, the Oscar for yep. Best Actor for Marlon Brando and The Godfather. And you hear the booze. Yeah, it you don't hear any support, no, no solidarity. And you can tell, like, she, it almost looked like that stage was swallowing her up because you it's could tell she felt all of whatever. And we don't know what was happening on the side stage, but according to her, uh, John Wayne was um, not having it. So. And not yeah. only that, I guess um, Clint Eastwood, too. <laughs> so this is, so and that's Cowboys, an age old huh? incident. Dude. We're talking the so 70s that still has reverberations today. And who gets to say who is indigenous? Who gets to say who is yeah, black? black? Yeah, because like Valine was, you know, uh, talking about, to me, you know, it's always funny when they tell a Mexican to go back to where they came from. Wasn't but Utah Mexican? If they think about <laughs> it, you know, they're indigenous to Turtle Island. And mm-hmm. that's the thing, like... You know, the colonial mindset, those are those lines. Well, you're on the other side of this that line. This is mine, not yours. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because, you know, the Apache tribes, they've gone further into Mexico also, too, because I know of uh, people that are Apache 
they might not claim they're Native American Indian in America, but yet they still have the bloodline of yeah. Apache. Ma you know? was talking about it last week. Mm-hmm. About, you know, yes. you know, this is a time before borders, and that's, and I mean, uh, you know, borders and, and that, that fabricated line is a whole nother conversation, a whole nother show, but it's just, it's wild. All right. So interesting to look at art, film, culture. Yes. An indigenous lens. Yeah, I feel like in looking at that and like with this month, um, Native American Heritage Month is such a good time to highlight and amplify these voices, these stories and these issues that come up and talking about that and redefining what it means to be indigenous. Because it's also argued with Sashin, they also talked about how they feel like they call it pretendians. And when you're a pretendian or pretend Indian, um, it it kind of dilutes mm-hmm. or takes away from the sovereignty of a tribe and tribal members. And so it's complex. There's a lot of facets to this and a lot of different ways to take this. So I feel like Dave brought up a really good point. He says, we would love to hear what people think out there. And we would love for them to email us. Yeah, and just your thoughts, you know, of how, you know, the mindset and the way this thing went. And, you know, of course, an apology was put out to Sashin, too. But what was it, 50 years later? (laughs) For her treatment. Yes. And I think the thing that people need to also remind themselves is regardless of what her lineage is, it does not take away from the message that she's putting forth. She is is shining a light on something that is still going on today, 50, 60, 70 years later. Can I play devil's advocate? Please do. I'm thinking Rachel Dolezal. Oh. Yes. Did yes. I say uh, I can't remember I, I, I don't, I don't her know. Name she ain't right. no kin to me. But, you know, <laughs> claimed to be <laughs> yes. African-American. Wasn't. No, she wasn't. And I think it gets into, like, where does a cult, cultural appropriation and things like that. And, I mean... Yeah, like she she wanted not only did she pretend to be black, but she went she went full on. She was like head of the NAACP down Something in like D- DC. <laughs> and I I mean, I you know, hey, I'm not here to shame anybody, but I saw pictures and I was like, "Oh, you know, I, I remember seeing her at the cookout." <laughs> <laughs> Cracking me up. Well, so again, what's the email for folks who want to reach out? Oh, yeah, so leave a comment at uh living the circle at uh krcl.org and dave john and valine mc every sunday 7 to 10 a.m hosting living the circle of life and having these conversations and shining that light and bringing more music from by and for the indigenous community 7 to 10 every sunday and if you miss a sunday you can listen on to the man on demand the last two weeks of any show at krcl.org so coming up we've got a cinematographer on Zoom hold, so he wanted to hear a song, though. Oh, yeah, he did. What you got Yeah, there? he did. We got Street Fighter Moss by Kamasi Washington from the Heaven and Earth album on KRCL. Bring it. Support for KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru and the Subaru Love Promise, a partnership with local nonprofit organizations to support and strengthen our community. Now accepting applications for 2023 nonprofit partnerships. More information on Mark Miller Subaru's Love Promise and application process at markmillersubaru.com. Music Meets Movies continues this Thursday, November 10th with award-winning film Rumble, The Indians Who Rock the World. 
Rumble is a documentary about the far too often overlooked influence indigenous musicians had and still have on popular music in North America. There was this key expression, be proud you're an Indian, but be careful who you tell. All of a sudden I was talking about Native American issues and big time television. And all of a sudden, everything disappeared. Rumble, the Indians who rocked the world. This Thursday at Bruvies in Salt Lake. One screening only. Tickets at the door at 6.30 p.m. Movie at 7.30 p.m. And Dave John and me, Valiant MC, will be there. More information at krcl.org. Woo! Y'all better show up next week. <laughs> that is, that's our very own, our very own Valine. So I'm excited, y'all. But before we go, just to let you know, you are listening to uh, KRCL. This is Roundtable Tuesdays. And coming up at 7, we have Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman live talking about uh, the elections tonight. Connor and the Late Night Lowdown at 8. Super Sounds with Chovy at 10.30. And Wrap It All Around with John Florence and A Brand New Day at 6 a.m. But let's get into it. We have Robert Hunter here with us. He's on Zoom, and he's with us. He is a cinematographer, and he's going to be hanging out with Val and Dave. And uh, well, welcome to the show, Robert. It's nice to have you, brother. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. And it's y'all's. Robert, thank you so much for joining us here. Uh, Dave and I are so excited that you were able to, to come on the show on Radioactive. And we would love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us a little bit about yourself, including your tribe. Yeah, uh, so my name is Robert L. Hunter. I'm a cinematographer currently residing here in Tongva Territories, otherwise known as Los Angeles. Um, I'm Blackfeet and Shoshone Paiute, uh, originally from Browning, Montana. Um, my mom is from Browning, Montana, and my dad is from uh, Duck Valley, it's um, Owyhee, Nevada. It's a Shoshone Paiute reservation. So I kind of grew up spending both my time, you know, back and forth in Montana and Nevada over there. Amazing. It was so good to have you. And I loved looking at your website and where you, it was like phenomenally indigenous period i love it goosebumps i love it <laughs> that's awesome yeah yeah duck valley it's way out there isn't it <laughs> yeah it's about um about an hour north of uh elko nevada about a couple hours south of boise idaho it's yeah. right there on the border between idaho and nevada yeah the they there's a powwow that goes on out there and yeah usually uh this one uh, Harold Begay, he's usually an MC out there. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, why is it uh, your passion to tell stories as a DP slash cinematographer? Can you tell our listeners, you know, what that role is in filmmaking? Yeah, um, so a cinematographer, other uh, sometimes they're called directors of photography, that's kind of the formal credit that you'll see in, in films. Um, and I guess the, the profession is cinematographer. Um, we're kind of like the right hand of the director and we're kind of the, the individual responsible for translating the director's vision for the film 
onto onto the screen and we kind of do so by using various tools at our disposal such as um camera and lens selection our use of lighting and kind of organizing you know the grip and electric team um and you know working closely with the director in uh our, our shot selection camera placement you know everything that kind of makes up the film you can think of um if you were to look at a film kind of like a, a quilt, a quilt is made up of, uh, you know, individual stitches. And you can say that's kind of like what a shot is. You don't see a shot, you see a movie, you know, and I guess that's kind of what a cinematographer does. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, um, oh, please continue. Oh, I guess I didn't answer the other part of the question. Um, what what brought me to brought me to cinematography yeah tell um, us your passion to tell stories as a cinematographer yeah yeah um well i guess i guess for me i was i was kind of you know i didn't start making films or or you know pursuing filmmaking until i was around 21 years old i had kind of feel like i lived various different lives up until that point, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And ultimately I was um, working as a dishwasher at Snoqualmie Casino up there in uh, the Pacific Northwest. And kind of just dawned on me while I was in this like hot, stinking dish pit one evening that like, if I'm gonna be, um, you know, broke, <laughs> I might as well be broke doing something that I love. Um, <laughs> I love and, that. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, pursuing something Finding, finding something that I can give my all to, you know, and, and also a profession where I can find a way to be of service to my family and community. And it just kind of landed on filmmaking. I don't know why, but that was, um, it just, it, it just clicked. And I didn't know anything about filmmaking. I, I just started reading books, like the most basic, um, you know, what a movie is, how a movie is made a little bit, and just like, you know, basic, almost like, you know, the For Dummy books. Um, and initially I wanted to, you know, go into like producing and directing, um, but it, I kind of just, you know, through through fate, found my, my way into the camera department as an assistant camera. And through there kind of worked um, on various short films, music videos, commercials, and then ultimately into like the feature realm as a camera assistant. And then um, I just I just fell in love with it. And I think that be, kind of became my form in understanding the the power that we actually have over the stories as a as a camera, as a camera person through our lens and through um, just the way we view the world. We have an, a tremendous influence on the final picture. And I love how you walked us through kind of how that journey is of to becoming a filmmaker from kind of um, its inception to where you are now. And feature length films is what every filmmaker aspires to. Um, can you tell us, though, a little bit about how you even got to this point? Because you actually went through and completed the program at the American Film Institute, which is one of the premier film schools that is very, very hard to gain admissions into. So can you tell us a little bit about that? And then I think you have some Salt Lake connections here and that helped you get to that. So 
share a little bit about your path, Robert. We want to hear, <clears throat> how did you become this filmmaker here in Salt Lake and then out to AFI? Yeah, well, actually, from Washington State, where I was working and living at the time, I kind of, um, I moved directly to Los Angeles, where I started working in the industry and kind of got thrown into the fire, so to speak, um, not knowing anything. And then I I worked out uh, here in Los Angeles for about a year before I moved back to Salt Lake City to formally go to school. Um, I just felt kind of, I, w I didn't feel ready to fully make that commitment to Los Angeles. It was a big culture shock for me. And I, and I still felt like I needed um, an education, you know. Um, so I moved back to Salt Lake City um, and I just started working before I even considered school out here or like which school to go to, I kind of just started working, um, uh, you know, basic jobs. I worked at like Target, um, early morning stocking shelves. And then I worked at a, a camera camera house out there called Acme, Acme Camera Company. Yes. Um, yeah. And um, shout out to Jacob. And, uh, <laughs> and from there, you know, we had a lot of customers coming in and I was kind of, I would able, I was able to kind of talk with them and kind of get, kind of gauge the temperature of which school was the best out there, like for film, studying film. And um, it turns out there was a lot of alum from Salt Lake Community College out there and they had nothing but great things to say about the support and um, the hands-on experience and, you know, everything about it. And a lot of them were coming in and they were like working. So I was like, ah, that seems like a great school. So I ended up just going to Salt Lake Community College and, you know, kind of, I took a few film classes, but at that point I had already kind of made up my mind that the the direction I wanted to go in was cinematography. Um, so I actually went down the photography path at Salt Lake Community College and, um, yeah, that was the main thing. I just, um, I had amazing, amazing uh, photography teachers, Ed Rosenberg, Terry Martin. Um, and I felt like it was the perfect balance between, you know, um, the technical craft and also um, the emotional craft. Well, the story we're trying to tell within each frame, you know. Yeah, that and, photographic and, vision. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, expression through that, you know, and it was a, it was a, it was a beautiful balance that I found. And then also I had all my friends in the film department. So I would, I would be, I would, I was able to kind of go shoot their films <laughs> at the same time. And so, so how did that help you get into AFI? How did that, how did those end up connecting? Cause that's like a pretty cool and big leap. Cause I know some of your professors, I asked them about, yeah, <laughs> nothing but glowing yeah, yeah. ideas, <laughs> glowing testimonies. That's awesome. I I um I first heard about AFI when I was working out in Los Angeles. Um, I I'd met a director that was going through his second year. It's a two-year master's program, and I had met a director going through his second year working on his thesis film. And he had talked about how you know the average kind of thesis film, um, the budget was around you know sixty to seventy thousand dollars. And I was like, oh, dang, like for a student short, that's crazy. And like he started talking about the program and how it's disciplinary based. And and it just sounded like exactly something that I wanted to do. 
And so I kind of made it like a five-year goal to, to, to build enough of a reel and a resume to get into the American Film Institute. And by the time I had went to Salt Lake Community College, um, you know, I was shooting, I was, I was working full time at uh, the camera, the camera house. I was going to school full time. Um, and I was, and I was shooting projects on the side and it was kind of like this perfect balance. And so when it kind of came time for me to apply to the American Film Institute, I actually did it on a, on a, on a whim. I, I wasn't planning on applying that the the year that I did. Um, but I just kind of did it last minute. And I happened to ask, um, you know, Channing, he's a professor there at... Um, he was at, one of the professors uh, I talked to. Yeah, <laughs> he yeah, says hello. Yeah. <laughs> he's awesome. I love Channing. No, Channing's he's amazing. That, he's part of that support system. You know, he was always there um, when we were shooting these short films. And I would, you know, have these crazy gear lists, you know, these huge, huge, you know, equipment requests. He was always giving the hookups and making sure that we'd be able to pick them up and, you know, kind of had like those little extra special privileges, which was awesome. That's um, amazing. Because he said that you it, and other, um, another aspiring filmmaker teamed up and that, were you both admitted that same at the same um, year? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Julia, she was... Her and I, we shared like a production one class together. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we had worked together as well, kind of like uh, we did a personal project together. Um, but she ended up getting accepted into the AFI um, last year. So she's going through the program right now. Oh, that's which amazing. Is yeah. So it's, that's a, the filmmaking. It's it's very much a like a collaborative event. Is that the right way to say it? It's not the right word, but... It is so much about helping each other out and coming up with each other. And you see this a lot, too, with, I mean, I feel like Native people are really having a moment, which I hope isn't a moment. I hope it's the beginning of something. Mm. Like, Dave, you've seen that, too. Oh, yeah. Um, the representation, you know, of both sides of the camera, you know, matters and filmmakers are being recognized in mainstream film more and more. Uh, I think one of the ones that are big is, you know, reservation dogs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's really been an impact. You hear a lot of scolding going on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Hulu film Prey, too. I mean, that breaking records for Hulu. It's like really, really like opened something up for them. And everyone was like, wait, Predator, it's a classic film. And then people were like, all this buzz about Prey. And I was like, all right, I don't like to watch horror movies or thrillers. But I was like, exception for this one. And I'm so glad I did. Yeah, I was waiting for the hero to say, do it, do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so, um, how has your indigenous her heritage uh, helped influence your filmmaking and visual uh, storytelling? Oh man, that's like a. I think, in in every aspect, I think you know the my upbringing as like an indigenous person, as a black person, as a Shoshone Paiute person. Um, it impacts it like every day. And I think um, 
you know, one of the one of the things I, I always say this about the American Film Institute is one of the things that it taught me, and I'm and it and you know it might have just been you know their the way they do things there, but I kind of felt like it was unintentional. Um, was to look further and further into my my culture, at, and looking further and further away from kind of like a Eurocentric standard, Euro like American Euro American centric standard of filmmaking, you know. And I think you know, as much as I love AFI, that's it's very much kind of grounded in that that reality, and that's where at least it was when I was going to school there, you know. And I know they're they're constantly trying to improve, which is amazing. That's why they're the number one school but i think when i was going to school there i really i kind of i struggled culturally because there was nobody there that looked like me i was the only native at the school and um i know what that feels like (laughs) yeah and i and i and i don't have and i didn't have um there wasn't any like there wasn't any photography books that i can turn to that dissect you know in uh an indigenous lens um, that, you know, that, that can inform the decisions that I wanted to make and, and try and step away, kind of like decolonize the way I see movies, um, decolonize, you know, the way we um, perceive what is correct, what is incorrect in film um, and, and tap more into an emotion, you know, that might've been rooted more in, in something that's more personal to me I guess, like for instance, um, the idea of what is like correct exposure, what is like the correct, uh, the correct focal length on a on a camera when framing a close up, or you know, um, just these little things that are kind of like baked into our subconscious because for a, a hundred years we've been seeing it in kind of like this Eurocentric standard. Yeah, um, like can I add to that too? as cinematography for melanated skin. I mean, that's something that's not really talked about because nothing gets on my nerves more when I'm watching a film and then I see a person of color and you can't recognize any of their features and I'm like, where is the cinematographer? Where's the lighting? Because I'm annoyed right now and I'm about to turn this movie off. (laughs) Sorry, I'm making this about me. But (laughs) what I'm saying is like, I see you and I understand and I hear you. Um, Robert, we're coming up and we're going to be wrapping here in about four minutes, but I want to hear a little bit, um, if we can, about um, some projects that you have that you have coming up that you want to maybe share with our listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, I mean, one of the first films that we shot right out of, of American Film Institute, I, I worked on it with my um, my brother there who was a screenwriter. His name is Victor Gabriel. Um, you know, he wrote a, a, a feature film called The Incredible Heist of Hallelujah Jones, and through that project, he kind of got management and um, representation. And with his team, they kind of reverse engineered it into a proof of concept short film. And so kind of right out of the gates, Vic and I, we went through and we worked on making that film. You know, we shot it with with no money. We shot it in his backyard in Compton, California. Um, I don't think anybody got paid. You know, I used one of my classmates' cameras um, you know, and it was really just an experiment for us, but, you know, it kind of, it's been received very well, you know, it played at Sundance this past year and, um, you know, it's won a few awards at film festivals. Yeah, and it did great. 
I mean, congratulations, yeah. man. That's Thank amazing. Yeah. And actually, yeah. I have to say, too, if you want to hear um, about Hallelujah, you could actually go to Laura Jones, the executive producer of Radioactive. You can go to January 24th of 2022 and um, you can pull up the show and listen back to it because they they covered your film. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. So you have yeah. to tell us real quick. We want to hear. Mm hmm. Now, where is the film at and who is involved with Hallelujah yeah. now? Yeah, so it's um, it's currently doing an, uh, an, an Oscar campaign, which is amazing. Awesome. So we're doing- I got goosebumps. Launch. Yeah, <laughs> and it, Spike Lee just boarded the project as an executive producer. Wow. And yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of just, it's gaining traction from there and, and the feature is coming. Wow. I mean, that's amazing. I got goosebumps for that. So, so you said, um, so you're going to start possibly production on that next year, or you said it would be released next year. Sorry, I missed that. Uh, production would start next year. Okay. 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 Mm -hmm. So as we wrap the show here, we definitely want to hear, um, more about how can people follow your work and what you're working on. And like, do you have social media website? Give it to us, Robert. Yeah, I'm on Instagram. Um, it's just Robert L. Hunter. Um, it's my my hash or whatever the handle. Um, I do have a website. It's also it's just robertlhunter.com. Um, yeah, that's about it, really. I mean, social media is kind of as much as I kind of loathe it. It's kind of uh, one of the more important aspects of being a cinematographer nowadays. <laughs> We have to thank you so much. That will be in the show notes. And thank you so much, Robert, for connecting with us today and keep that indigenous filmmaking going and keep the phenomenally indigenous. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. Ooh, thank you, Robert. Thank you, Val. Thank you, Dave. That was that was awesome. Big that was things. awesome. Yeah. Big things. Big things for sure. I look forward to that. And that was that was our show, y'all. That was our show. Uh, thanks to all our guests on Radioactive this hour. If you like tonight's show and want to share it, you can listen on demand with Carousel mobile app anywhere you go on stream or stream it online. Take care, everybody. And once again, you got about an hour. Get out there and vote. Rock that indigenous vote. Koyana. KRCL 90.9 FM, HD1, Salt Lake City, Ogden, Provo, 96.7 FM in Park City, and on the web at krcl.org.